This week, I'm with Karim Zidane, no relation, who's an investigative journalist, written for The Guardian, New York Times, Foreign Policy, does an excellent newsletter. Welcome, Karim. Thanks, and it's a pleasure to be on today. I was really interested in in your work and the kind of broad spectrum of topics you cover from MMA and Formula One and obviously the geopolitics of sport. Tell us a little bit about you, your background and the work you do. I think that's a great question to start us off at because honestly, it's my background and my personal experience that really set the stage for me to even consider covering the intersection of sports and politics as sort of the niche beat that became my sort of journalistic profile. So for a lot of people, and I get this question a lot, honestly, why, why sports and politics? Like, why do you think that there's such a relationship between sports and politics to begin with? My answer has always been, well, I've never seen a world where that wasn't the case. I'm Egyptian. I grew up in Egypt. Let's, let's go back to the origin story itself. I was at a football game. It's an Ahli football game. And Ahli is uh, sort of Egypt's most well-known and dominant football mm-hmm. club, really one of the one of the most dominant football clubs in all of Africa. Probably won the Champions League more time than any other African nation or African team. And I was at a football game. I think it was El Ahli versus Barcelona, believe it or not. And this was in 2007. And this was sort of the early days of Messi in Barcelona. Yeah. You had Eto and you had you had this beautiful, beautiful team. Ronaldinho was on the team at the time. It was a really beautiful team. And uh, it was just at the end of the days of Pep Guardiola as well. And I remember, he, I mean, Ali got, got, got demolished. I think it was like 4-0 or 4-1 or something like that. But that wasn't the most important part here. I was in the stadium and just trying to enjoy the game. And I remember at one point going to get some water or get something to eat or have a smoke, something along those lines. And I'm moving between the stands and in one of the sections. And I see a police officer just pull one of the fans out and just beat the crap out of him with the baton. And I'm 15 years old at the time. I I think I was 15 years old at the time. I had just moved back to Egypt from Bahrain. And I was thinking to myself, what what on earth am I experiencing here? And I went and I sat back with my cousin, who was someone who was well involved with the ultras. And the ultras are these hardcore football fans. And Egypt's Al-Ahli had the most notorious and powerful, influential such ultras group, uh, known as the Ultras Ahlawi. He told me, listen, this welcome to Egypt at this point. You've just moved back here, but this is exactly what life is like here. Anytime we have a say or we try and say anything or we try and enjoy a football game, you'll find the police coming out and abusing. Right. So you immediately were just thrown into this police state of a, of a world. And, and football was one of those main playgrounds for that. So one of these battlegrounds that set the stage for the war that would end up taking place between these hardcore football fans who all they wanted to do was to find this outlet for self-expression and the police state, which at the end of the day was terrified of the idea of young men gathering together in, in mm. any such group, honestly. It absolutely terrified the state. And I mean, that's understandable for any dictatorship. At the end of the day, dictatorships yeah. are absolutely terrified of the will of the people. And that was the case in Hosni Mubarak's Egypt, and that remains the case in modern Egypt. Yeah. But since then, yeah. Ed, honestly, it's been impossible for me not to see a, a correlation between sports and politics in every facet of my life, really. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is the the tribal nature of sport, the passion it, 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 it elicits, and the fact that that can be co-opted, I think. And it's, it, these themes that you explore so well, I think, in your newsletter so, so tell us a little bit about how how do you get to the point where this has become the sort of the principal focus of your work? I mean, I know you cover other things, and actually, you have a, a a wide breadth of of stuff. But the stuff that really kind of stands out is is the intersection of sport and politics. What what drove the passion there, and how how do you work? Because that's a that's a tough beat to to choose as a as a living, isn't it? It is, but I have to say that. Well, of course, there was a choice in the matter. I chose to 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 follow this niche, but I think there's been an element of luck of the draw involved in this, and just circumstances of 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 where I ended up living for a variety of periods. So I had these experiences in Egypt that helped sort of shape my understanding of sports and what role they actually play in, in the world, especially in countries that are far less privileged than the Western world countries that aren't democratic at the end of the day, where you're forced to live under either monarchies or dictatorships or military and and police states. So between taking that experience 
and then ending up getting into the world of journalism afterwards, I got this opportunity early on when I, I got I got into journalism, sports journalism, in particular, straight out of university. I got signed by this uh, MMA website called bloodyelbow.com and bloodyelbow.com was part of vox media at the time and this was in the era of this is around 2014 it's in the era where all sorts of venture capital funding was going into all these sites like vox and vice etc to sort of build out their empires and vox was really uh, specialized in building out these sports blogs that they had Mm. part of sb nation and bloody elbow was was front and center in the mma field at the time and MMA was one of those sports that was really fascinating me. I had gone to Canada to study the University of Toronto, and a lot of the friends I made there were really interested in MMA, and that became sort of a sport I was following and I was really fascinated by. And I thought, you know what, this might be an in for writing, because at the end of the day, I'll be honest with you, journalism wasn't my original passion. It was simply writing. I right. wanted to be a writer, and I thought, well, sports journalism is likely going to be my easiest path in, certainly easier than starting out by trying to be a novelist, let's say. <laughs> right? And I think, I think I was right. I think I was right about that. So interestingly, though, as I started working for Bloody Elbow, maybe three, four months in, I interviewed this Russian oligarch who happened to own a mixed martial arts organization, the oldest in Russia at the time. And I'm having this interview and he doesn't speak English. So we've got a translator between us who happens to be their PR representative as well of the organization. So she's translating his statements to me. And in the middle, she just stops and she's like, Kareem, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, sure. She's like, Vadim, and Vadim was the name of the oligarch. His name was Vadim Finkelstein. She's like, Vadim really likes your voice. Would you ever consider being a sports commentator for M1 Global? Have you ever done that before? <laughs> I'm like, I certainly haven't, but you know, I, I can consider it and I, it'll give me some time to think about it. She's like, well, that's good because we'd like you to come next month to St. Petersburg, <laughs> if possible. And that's just immediate introduction to, to this world. So I thought about it and I said, you know what? I'm just getting into the sports journalism world. Who knows if I'm going to have a real future? I'm not making any real money here at this point. Might as well see what this what this path takes me on. And I'm so glad, Ed, that I did accept that offer. Because spending the next two years going back and forth to Russia, two and a half years, actually, going back and forth to Russia, I experienced it all. I went to the North Caucasus region. Right. I went to St. Petersburg, to Moscow, to Orenburg. Like to Kazan, I got to see so many incredible places. I went beyond that to Azerbaijan, to Georgia, really got to see a side of the world I wouldn't have seen before. Yeah. And what was really fascinating was getting to see the underbelly of how a sport like mixed martial arts operated in a place like Russia, a sport that was controlled by oligarchs and featured so many darker elements, a lot of gangsters involved in the sports. Yeah. Like I ended up interviewing a fighter while I was there, getting to know this fighter who had been wrapped up in a cult that was run by his former coach in Kiev at the time. I ended up meeting the best friend of a former UFC fighter who ended up becoming a hitman for one of the biggest gangsters in Southern Russia. <laughs> so just the, the the most absurd sort of movie style stories you right. think of yeah. ended up actually taking place in front of me. I remember having a political discussion and debate actually with an ex-KGB officer who happened to be at this MMA event. Afterwards, he went out. We went down. He decided to go shot for shot with me. Apparently, that was the only way you could have a rational discussion with <laughs> this man. He's like, I got to make sure you can drink with me first. So, yeah, you just, you'll be amazed what happens in conversations once you go shot for shot with a, yeah. with a KGB <laughs> agent, you know? I'd, I'd be <laughs> very careful there. So yeah. many... <laughs> uh, <it's... laughs> well... It was friendlier than I expected. I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking off air about travel. And I do think I've done a lot of travel, as listeners will know, around the world, most of it for work. But it all it all felt, well, mostly, 90% of it felt very safe. And so I haven't necessarily had all those experiences, although I did try to go to Millionaires versus Tigres in Bogota and was told, hey, my boss is under no circumstances are you allowed to do that, Ed? <laughs> um, so, which was, I was like, hey, it feels like a nice city, Bogota. I don't know what, what's the problem here. <laughs> anyway, like, that's a, it's a great sort of introduction, I think, to the work you do and the, the kind of the background. Because one of the one of the pieces I found interesting in your in your in your Substack is looking at MMA as a breeding ground for sort of militias and people who might join the armed conflict in Ukraine. Very very specifically tying sport and and politics together there, as as we know now know, and I think the world kind of maybe recognizes happened through the 2018 World Cup as well. 
Oh, there's, there's, there's really no doubt about it. You know, honestly, all these stories that I acquired and I accumulated during my time in Russia truly found new life and relevance in the war, like during this war in Ukraine right now. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really altered my perception of a lot of what's occurred during my time in Russia, what I've uncovered and what I've been reporting on over the past few years. To, to, to give you an example, and to really, I really want to hone in a bit on, on sort of how MMA has been used as this weapon throughout the war. Mm -hmm. When I was in Russia, I ended up first encountering the henchmen of a Chechen dictator. And Chechnya is one of the republics in, in Russia. It's a, it's a republic in the North Caucasus, and it's been a very troubled republic for a long time. It went through multiple civil wars with, with Russia, including Putin carpet bombing. If you want to talk about Putin emerging as a, as a warlord, Chechnya was his experiment ground. That's where he first honed that skill set to become a true warlord mm -hmm. by carpet bombing Chechnya to the ground. Uh, truly, truly, like nothing we've ever breeding ground for the Wagner. Well, absolutely, right. So you had uh, you 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 had a really difficult history throughout Chechnya, and through that, in that power vacuum emerges this this dictator called Ramzan Kadyrov, who assumes power in two thousand seven, fully backed and supported by. And by Vladimir Putin, who, who funds his uh, his republic and basically uses him as sort of the, the person who's going to maintain control over Chechnya. The fact that Chechnya hasn't once again stepped out of line or attempted to attack Moscow or anything of the sort is all due to Ramzan Kitirov ma maintaining this iron grip over the republic. And one of the ways he's really sort of uh, re-socialized his people is by introducing mixed martial arts as sort of the national sport. He funded and created his own personal fight club where thousands and thousands and thousands of Chechen strain. And he also created his own MMA organization. So he has all these fighters who are fighting for him while he sits on this raised dais in the arena, taking it all in and being celebrated as this magnanimous leader, right? Rather than the vicious warlord and tyrant right. he actually is. And so much so that he's been able to build up this relationship with the UFC and actually have some of his best fighters go and perform in the UFC, which is just crazy when you really think about it. A warlord can just fund these fighters and then send them off to fight in America, and it's perfectly fine. So it turns out, after years of reporting, with reporting that actually began with me sitting, doing my job as a commentator at this organization in Russia, and then seeing these henchmen walk into the arena. And since I'm cage side, like I'm, I'm, I'm on the floor at this point, right? That's where the, that's where the booth is. It's not, it's not in the distance. It's right there in front right. of the action. And to see those front rows go dead silent the second those people showed up, it was like nothing I had ever experienced in a live event where it's loud and it's, and it's noisy. The chill that went through my spine, even though I did not recognize or know these human beings, it's something I will never forget, even though it occurred nearly 10 years ago now. So I would ask later, my, my colleague at the time was this Russian uh, broadcaster who was replacing another one who would end up coming later. But it's a good thing he was there because he was the one who ended up explaining, oh, these are horrible people. You don't want anything to do with them. You don't want to know them. Trust me. Let's talk about this later. Let's not talk about this right now. I would later find out that those henchmen were some of the representatives for Ramzan Kadyrov, and he was there to sort of keep an eye on one of the fighters who was competing at the, the M1 Global show at the time. And this sort of set off a chain reaction of me reporting on Ramzan Kadyrov over the years. Mm -hmm. Things that I would end up uncovering were his use of sports as a tool for political, for political advancement, let's say. Uh, the machinations of politics through sports is really something I focused on with Ramzan Kadyrov. But really, what became super interesting was realizing that he was using his MMA gym as a breeding ground mm. for soldiers on top of it. So think of it this way. Ramazan Kadyrov views Chechen men, a real Chechen man, in one of two ways. You can either be a fighter for him in the cage and go represent him either in Chechnya or in the UFC. That way he earns that sort of pride and prestige from having you there representing him and his country mm -hmm. or his republic. Or if you're not that great a fighter, you can go represent him on the battlefield where your blood, at least, you, know, you die in honor of Chechnya that way. So one way or another, you're representing him somewhere, either maybe in the cage or in the battlefield. And that's, that's a terrifying thing. Ramzan Kadyrov also happened to be the story that sort of broke me into mainstream journalism. Yeah. HBO would end up doing a documentary that I was involved in on Ramzan Kadyrov in 2017, and that sort of set the sets my future career in motion right there. I ended up 
stopping my trips to Russia in 2016 due to death threats specifically for reporting on Ramzan Kadyrov. But what I got in return was mainstream attention. And for that, I ended up doing articles for foreign policy, particularly about Mo Salah during the 2018 World Cup when Egypt ended up going and staying in Chechnya yeah. having their training camps yeah. there. One of the things Ramzan Kadyrov did at the time was take pictures, was wake Mo Salah up from, from sleep, pull him out and make him like sort of walk around uh, an arena filled with fans with him to take pictures. This is what Kadyrov loves to do. Yeah. For him, hey, Kadyrov really uses sports in a way that really lives up to the term sports washing. No. For him, it is a, a way to distract from human rights abuses and to launder his reputation. And he did that great with Mosalah. For him, Ramzan Kadyrov being a Muslim himself, a Muslim minority in, in, uh, in Russia, right? Him being able to rub shoulders with probably and arguably the biggest Muslim star in the world, yeah. Mo Salah, especially in 2018, like the height of Mo Salah really, it was just priceless PR for Kadyrov. Yeah. And that really represents, and that's him in a nutshell for you right there. And he became even more relevant during the war in Ukraine. Yeah. That's the shocking thing about it. I mean, he's actually participating. Some of those, some of those Chechen soldiers that you're seeing in the war right now, they're particularly responsible for some horrific war crimes. Some of them were actually MMA fighters. Right. Some of them were MMA fighters that just simply weren't good enough. Hmm. And I said, that's a terrible thing when you think of a sport being used as a breeding ground for warfare. Yeah, I mean, that's, right? that's not that's not that's not common. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. I mean, it's incredibly visceral, <laughs> isn't it? And I was thinking it. you've also reported on the Gulf, of course, and that's top of mind for everyone right now for a number of reasons. Uh, and that's perhaps the it's less visceral but it, but it's very very political isn't it and tell, tell, tell us a little bit about the, the sort of framework for how some some of the gulf countries but particularly saudi arabia because of their involvement with golf and now football and and the sort of politics behind yeah. that and and what the what the goals are really because i i sometimes get the sense that we're all a bit we got we got used to the word sports washing but it's a bit crude and it, it's not it doesn't mm-hmm. really encompass what's actually going on here so I'm glad I'm glad you're touching on this right after we mentioned Ramzan Kadyrov because the contrast here helps in our in our understanding. If we take Ramzan Kadyrov as the embodiment or the personification of what we mainly understand as this crude definition of sports watching, just reputation laundering, well, then he fits the bill fantastic. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia, I don't think sports watching is an ideal term. Why? Because I think it's far more complex than that. With Saudi Arabia, it really does come down to a multi-pronged strategy. Uh, for Saudi Arabia, there are a wide variety of reasons at the end of the day why they are so heavily investing in sports. So let's take it from the very beginning. They are promoting this thing called Vision 2030, which is uh, trying to... Uh, and Saudi Arabia's reliance and dependence on oil as their primary source of industry and moving on to other forms of industry and building up their entertainment sector, their tourism sector, mm-hmm. which leads us to another big thing. They're very interested in building up their tourism sector. Saudi Arabia was a country that was closed off for a very, very long time, a very long time. And it's a shocking thing, really, because many parts of that country are extremely beautiful, especially those natural areas in right. the deserts. Uh, they're really gorgeous places. So the fact that people have been robbed from the opportunity to see them for a long time is something that Saudi Arabia is now going to absolutely utilize in its tourism campaigns. And this is where sports fits in dramatically because what do you think Cristiano Ronaldo is in Saudi yeah. Arabia? Because they want that attention on Saudi Arabia. And it's not necessarily just from the Western world because I've heard people say, well, uh, do you think just because Ronaldo's competing in Saudi that I'm going to fly out there and watch him? You're not the target, yeah. friend. You're not the target. I was in Egypt where I saw a massive billboard saying, Ronaldo's in Saudi Arabia. Visit Saudi. Visit Saudi. That's the target. It's yeah. the Arab world. It's the Arab world that's nearby. The people who aren't used to seeing Ronaldo, who aren't used to seeing some of the best athletes in the world playing on what would technically still be referred to as home field advantage, really. In the Arab world, that's why Qatar's World Cup was referred to as the Arab yeah. World Cup. It was the first opportunity that all these countries got to experience something like a World Cup in their side of the world with different fan bases entirely that really matters so even when you think in the context of tourism the western world isn't the primary target here so you really have to stop trying to frame and but you i'm just the royal you here it's trying to stop frame it in the sense well it doesn't really apply to the west and it can't be true 
Well, the West isn't the target. Saudi yeah. Arabia's target is Asia primarily. Yeah. And we're seeing that from the new alliances they're building. We're seeing that from the tournaments that they're focusing on, the Asian championship, the, all these different things that they're going to be hosting in the future are really directed in the region or in Asia overall, rather than the Western world. So that's really something we have to take into consideration when talking about tourism. Really, another facet of, of sports for them is the prestige that they build, the geopolitical influence that comes out of this, and the supremacy, the regional supremacy that comes from something like this. So we can really talk about the sort of rumors and the reports of a 2030 World Cup bid in Saudi Arabia. Well, there's a reason that Saudi Arabia didn't bid solo for something like this, even though they have the capacity. And I understand that they haven't bid officially at all. Right. But there's a reason we're not talking about a Saudi solo bid, I think, at least. I think it's really interesting that they chose Egypt and Greece. Mm. I think it shows what type of alliances Saudi's trying to build. These are regional Mediterranean alliances right now that cross over multiple continents, showing you that Saudi Arabia wants to continue building its relationships with not just North Africa, but Africa overall. That's why its relationship with CAF is also changing dramatically. Right. While at the same time, we're seeing these sorts of changes happening in Europe as well with Saudi Arabia. This sort of, sort of geopolitical strategizing <clears throat> is really interesting in the context of sports. We don't see that all too often. And Saudi Arabia is trying to utilize whatever it can do, whatever advantage it can find. All right, well, you've seen an Arab World Cup and we don't want to have another Winter World Cup and we just had one in Qatar. How about we have a... World Cup that represents a different sort of world alliance mm. between Egypt, Greece, and Saudi Arabia. Something that looks very different to the Canada, US, and Mexico bid, which is this North America bid that's trusted and understand it. Very much fits the NAFTA agreements and the trade alliances that Correct. they have. There's yes. nothing new or special about that. Saudi Arabia is trying to show you a different understanding of the world and what they see as the potential future for the world for them future that they're attempting to also ice the West out of. Yeah. We're seeing that from the way they're raising oil prices right now, the way they're interacting with the United States in particular and the United States' foreign policy. We're seeing this as well with the alliances they're building with Iran. The fact that Saudi Arabia is restoring ties with Iran, mm. its arch rival, I cannot, even the term arch rival is an understatement <laughs> right. here. Yeah. The fact that it's restoring ties with Iran and at the same time that that deal was brokered by China rather than the United States yeah. is game-changing. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely game-changing. And we don't talk about that enough in sports. I understand that this is sort of political nerd talk that we're in right now. But really, I cannot stress how relevant this is to trying to understand Saudi's overall strategizing here. It is global. It is not just about the West. So, yeah, I do think that's a really interesting because I myself had to go through that journey of trying to understand the framing for this. And, and obviously, it's natural to kind of think about things in a Western context. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think that the term sports watching has kind of become outdated. And we have to think about both the internal and the international reasons for the involvement of, of, of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states. And it was particularly apparent, I thought, of the, the Qatar World Cup, which... You know, a lot of the discussion in the UK media was obviously about human rights, LGBTQ communities and, and migrant workers, but very much focused on it from an outside-in perspective. And But whereas the fans at the Qatar World Cup didn't think about it like that at all. And it's the first time I kind of engaged with very international fans on this on this topic. And the perspectives were very different. And it's important to recognize that. I'm glad you mentioned that, honestly, because, I mean, I'm an Arab, or I mean, I'm Egyptian, let's put it that way, because you can really, it's a whole different discussion about where you place Egypt on all this. Are we Arab? Are we African? In the end of the day, I'm Egyptian. I hold a connection with, with the, Arab, the Arab world, a significant one. And I've had my concerns from the very beginning about Qatar hosting the World Cup, but I've also not really enjoyed a significant portion of the reporting that took place in the lead up to the World Cup. Some of it was phenomenal. Some of the actual investigative reporting about what was happening to migrant workers. Like I'm thinking of reporting done by Tarek Panja, and I'm thinking of reporting done by Miguel Delaney. And these are excellent journalists. So when I'm thinking of these journalists, like when I'm thinking of, when I'm, when I'm about to criticize some of the reporting, these are certainly not the journalists I'm thinking of here. But some of it did lack context. Some of it made it appear that these events only take place within, within the Middle East or, or Qatar or 
only in authoritarian states, really not recognizing even the role that Western countries play in empowering and enabling these authoritarian regimes to begin with. Why, for instance, was there not enough reporting about the UK's sale of arms to Qatar? Like that the shipment of which the first shipment of arms arrived shortly before the World Cup. Like, how can we not frame things in that context as well? That sure, this is a horrible thing that's happening. This is not great that this authoritarian regime is hosting this and is getting away with all this and it's going to get all this pride and prestige out of this. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge our role in something like this. And I think that was not done enough. I think it's essential. I think it's important to do. I think it's a human right. But I also think you should be speaking to the actual communities when you're doing this kind of reporting. The idea that you can import Western notions and understandings and experiences of pride and queerness, and LGBTQ plus rights into any country as if it's a one-size-fits-all issue, take it or leave it my way or the highway, just doesn't work, unfortunately. The Arab world had a very different, different relationship with LGBTQ plus rights. And I'm not talking about how government's handling it. I'm talking about the people themselves. I'm talking about queer Arabs. I know plenty of queer Arabs. I spoke to these queer Arabs. Some of them I knew were actually at the World Cup. So in the West, that might be difficult to reconcile for some people. But I think topics like this require such nuance. I think it's essential that you speak to the actual communities. There are, there are out Qataris who you could have spoken to. There are members of the community who would have been willing to talk anonymously. Some people, where some of the journalists, when they were actually right. in Qatar, got to speak to some of these community members, and they were shocked by what they actually heard, that their interpretation was different. Their relationship, say, to the rainbow flag was very different to the Western world. And that's not to say it's a good or a bad thing. I'm not here to have that discussion. I'm here to say that when you're doing reporting, it's important that reporting isn't done in a parachute manner, but it's done in a a, a nuanced manner that is fact-based and that is beneficial as well to the community that you are writing about, especially when you're coming as a guest. Mm -hmm. This is not to say don't do any reporting on it, but certainly the thing that I thought was really lacking was the fact that very, very few of those articles had any mention of, of any queer Qataris whatsoever. That's extremely disappointing. Here's another thing. We... People were so upset about the idea of, of the World Cup taking place in Qatar that they completely rejected any of the positive, potential positives that could have taken place. The fact is that, let's talk about the 2026 World Cup. Do you think that most of mm -hmm. the nations or a lot of the people who got to attend the World Cup in Qatar will be able to make it into the United States with a visa or Canada with a visa where you can oh, barely yeah. get into with a tourist visa? Most of these people will never be let in not even for the World Cup. It's mm. just not going to happen. So for them, this was that once-in-a-lifetime experience to tend to get them closer. And yeah. you can tell from the, the crowds and what was important to them, uh, the types of protests that they were participating in. Think of the pro-Palestine protests. Think of Morocco's dream mm -hmm. run in the World Cup and how, how memorable that was and how important and emotionally complex that was for the crowd in attendance. That is why hosting World Cups in different locations is important. That's why we have to look beyond the Western world. But at the same time, we have to have to continue reckoning with human rights abuses and authoritarian regimes and how they are trying to uh, manipulate and weaponize the sports that we love. It's a complicated mm. issue. It is, requires a lot of nuance, but there's definitely lessons to be learned from how we covered the 2022 World Cup, including myself, by the way. This is a criticism I add to myself as well. Yeah, and and we will have to reckon that with that in 2026, where it's effectively a commercial operation. It's it's less government sponsored, but I remember back to my time going to London 2012. That was highly political, highly political, and for different reasons, perhaps, but no doubt that was. We'll see whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever it is will turn up at the opening ceremony for 2026. I'm sure that will be the case as well. So we look that with that, that it doesn't even have to be an apples to apples scenario, right? We don't even have to be looking at places in the United States. At the end of the day, if we're going to look at sports washing as a one to one thing, it's impossible to analyze authoritarian yeah. regimes the same way you analyze democratic ones, because at the end of the day, democratic nations have institutions that can get in the way and on, on obstruct uh, the actions that an otherwise authoritarian regime would be would take without any 
any any any consequences whatsoever, right? So it's not a a, a one to one relationship, but there is plenty of ways where you can analyze how sports events can lead mm-hmm. democratic nations to lose their way. Let's think of this, for instance. The Olympic Games are about to take place in Paris next year. And France is doing a very good job mm-hmm. of turning itself into an authoritarian state in the meantime. They have introduced AI surveillance tactics that are becoming far more common at sports events generally. These are absolutely authoritarian mm-hmm. uh, privacy concerns that we're seeing right here and france passed that bill with, without yes right uh, letting mm-hmm. it go through parliament correctly that is such a red flag that is such a red flag france is right now on fire due to police yeah. brutality and shooting of a 17 year old a 17 year old arab by the way in france so france sports can't hide that country's shame but they're certainly going to do the best they can to do so. So yeah. why are we not referring to that as sports yeah, washing? Yeah. Is it because it's not an oil shake that we're talking about? Now, see, we will have to reckon, if that's really the case for some people, we will have to for reckon sure, with yes. that xenophobia. Because you can't have you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. No, I, you're totally right. And, and it's important for us in this discussion when... Of course, the focus in England is is on Manchester City and Newcastle and potentially mm-hmm. Manchester United being in state hands, that we have that nuanced discussion. We reckon with issues of xenophobia and racism and state brutality and past imperialism uh, and the role that Western powers have played in the construction and politicization of uh, political institutions in the Middle East and other parts of the world too, right? We have to reckon with all of that. And it's very complex to do it in a social media age when we get 280 characters to make an argument. And that's and that's one of the worst things that's happened to the world, right? Is the fact that we have to make these these these, these statements online in a limited amount of characters where you can never apply that yeah. level of nuance. Nuance at Twitter don't don't work together. Let's be real, right? So that's the job of having these types of discussions that we're having right now. Well-written edited and discussed articles. That's 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 the role of of, of, of that at the end of the day, right? That, we're not going to get that kind of discussion on social media where even a topic like this is extremely polarized. You've got people who are acting extremely defensive about the World Cup taking place in Qatar and just assuming that any legitimate reporting about migrant worker issues, about LGBTQ rights was suddenly mm-hmm. just a matter of, oh, you hate us, you hate that we're succeeding, so you're going to write about us. That's that's not helpful on either side here. We need to find a way, me as a journalist, I'm trying to find ways to better reach my audience in a way that is not necessarily intending to forcibly polarize anybody. But in this polarized state, it's just very hard to reach new audiences willingly and openly and have people actually communicate with you and offer mm-hmm. feedback in good faith rather than in bad faith. That's something we're struggling with right now. I mean, I, one of the things that the World Cup was really noticeable was the... the- passion of the fans I mean, the Saudi Arabian fans were some of the best at the World Cup and it's I mean they were, they were great right you know it's clearly clearly passionate and and organized really and and we have to reckon we have to recognize that that people and regime are different things for a start I'm so glad you said that it cannot be stated enough it cannot be stated enough Listen, I come from Egypt where I didn't get a say in what my government does. I still don't get a say in what my government does in Egypt. You know what I mean? I don't get a say. It's taken us down like the, down the drain, like we're in an economic crash. And we didn't get any say in that. Saudis mm. certainly don't get any say in anything that's happening right now. So when people say things like, oh, the Saudis are coming, the, the level of... <laughs> it just sounds xenophobic. You're blaming the people for something they have no control over whatsoever. Mm. So I'm really glad you stated that, Ed. Then it's a good segue to, to think about football in England as well, because the, the sense I get, and, and maybe you, you, I'm sure you have a better understanding mm-hmm. of it, there are slightly different reasons why Abu Dhabi, although officially it's not a state-owned club, I think we know the difference. Pep, Pep, Pep let it slip at one of his press conferences <laughs> this year. And, and <laughs> obviously Newcastle, the public investment fund, I think that's much clearer. And potentially Qatar, which is a myriad of of companies that that may lead to what is ultimately at least a state-sponsored and or vetted bid. Let's talk about the different reasons why why this this may have happened in in England and and what the goals are and where we might go from here. What what are your thoughts overall on on what has happened to date? I think 
people try too hard sometimes to connect these countries because they're they're, they're all Gulf yeah. countries that yeah. suddenly they all have the same strategy when it comes to their their political interests, their their investment interests. And I don't think that that's fair at all. Saudi Arabia is a far older country than than the United yeah. Arab Emirates, for instance, which has been around for what fifty years, something along those lines. A very short period of time, basically, and. Uh, their goals and the way mm. they go about achieving them are also very, very different. Same with Qatar. Qatar, let's let's take Qatar in the World Cup since we were just there. Qatar is this tiny, tiny state, tiny country that is <laughs> that was for a very long time in exile from the rest of the Arab states in the region, primarily because it attempted to take a different political path and a political path that was not really the best of ideas harboring the amounts mm. of Islamists and extremists that they ended up harboring was definitely going to rub Arab states of the wrong way. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. There were trade embargoes and all sorts of things that took place at that time. But Qatar being able to host a World Cup thawed all those political tension. In the few years leading up to the World Cup, once the United Arab Emirates realized that they couldn't wrestle the World Cup away from Qatar, they gave in and restored mm. ties. Saudi Arabia did the exact same thing, restored ties. Even though we can talk a lot about you know, the privacy mm. issues with, uh, with television, etc. That's its own issue right there. There was clearly a lot of competitive rivalries going on between these nations. But Qatar was certainly able to elevate itself significantly on the political stage and, and really on the global stage overall by hosting the World Cup. That was its primary intention. That's what it achieves. So when people talk about mm. reputation laundering, complete garbage. Qatar doesn't care. Qatar doesn't care. Qatar has achieved what it wants and is in a far, far stronger position now than it was before hosting the World Cup. And that's not going to change for that country. Now, we talk about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has changed dramatically since Hamad bin Salman committed his coup yeah. and took over and became the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. His vision for the country is very different to the vision. The country was really, at the end of the day, an isolated, insular state that really wasn't very interested in anybody else except for trading oil and that's about it uh, very much run in a conservative islamic fashion so even its global investments were just a matter of investing it wasn't really with any plans of global expansion or or or, or, or restructuring of the world order uh, through sports in particular that changes a lot with Mohammed bin Salman. We talked about about 2030 vision. We talked about how he's intending to sort of restructure Saudi Arabia, present it as this reformed nation where women have more rights than before. And technically, they do have more rights than before. I guess they can drive, but you can still serve, you know, 30 years right. in prison simply for tweeting something out. So <laughs> rights, I guess. <laughs> it's an improvement. Who knows? But... Speaking to Saudi activists like Lina Al-Hathlul, they certainly do not believe at all that Saudi has, has, has reformed in the way it does. But sports and the sports landscape that Saudi has right mm. now really gives you the impression that it has reformed, hasn't it? Not to mention it's a great way to distract your people and not distracting the way sports washing distract other countries. We're talking about distracting your own people. Saudi has a population, I think, I think the majority yeah. of its population is under 35 years of age. You need to distract them somehow. Just like we were talking about in the very beginning for me, the reason the ultras were so important to Egyptians because that was the only mm. outlet for young Egyptian men to express themselves. There was nothing else. You were, people were standing on the streets smoking joints. That's all you did in Egypt. There was nothing else mm. to be done. right? So football was that outlet. Hamad bin Salman has offered the youth, the Saudi youth, plenty of different things from esports, from attending football games to investing and building your life in many different ways. It's a great way yeah. to distract from the country's political landscape. He's telling them, listen, I'll give you things, do whatever you want, just stay the hell out of the political yeah. world and don't you dare dissent against our governments, right? So Saudi has now taken this sort of platform, this sort of like first stage of its sports strategy yeah. and elevated since then. We're now talking about its global expansion, right? Its interest in, in, in geopolitical supremacy, its interest in really restructuring how the world operates. Its foreign policy is very much tied to its sports strategy right now. It's even trying to do commit hostile takeovers in the United States of one of America's yeah. sporting pastimes being golf. It's extraordinary. Like that's that's arrogance. That is arrogance right there. They're saying, come, show me what you can do. And it's now a matter of the United States to, be, to prove whether its own regulators can really put a halt to this hostile takeover. 
because everyone's referring yeah. to it as a merger. At the end of the day, let's call it what it actually is. It's a hostile takeover. And the United sure. States is about to roll over and let it happen, just like the United States rolls over to pretty much everything else Saudi has been doing over the past few years. So Saudi's sports strategy really mirrors and parallels its actual political and foreign policy strategy right now. The US regulatory framework is just not equipped to deal with this. So I'd be I'd be deeply surprised if if there is a challenge. <laughs> I mean there's been some grandstanding in in Congress by some senators, but you know, it's they haven't been able to regulate the internet companies and all the damage it's done to society in the last 25 years. So the idea that regulation would come to a, a single sport in, in what is effectively a commercial deal seems very unlikely to me. But but it's interesting. I mean, this was this was an acceleration of that of that sports strategy in what felt like just mere months from live being launched to the takeover of the PGA it wasn't didn't take very long. And I wonder whether it surprised the, the Saudi authorities too, that uh, it was so easy to co-opt that sport. It might have. It might be why they're, they're continuing to just steamroll ahead, right? Because it feels like they dipped their toes in the water at first, right? They were hosting a few races here and there. And they, 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 they started hosting some boxing events. They built that relationship with WWE, for instance, yeah. this 10-year partnership they now have. And they weathered some significant storms early on. WWE's second event that was held in Saudi Arabia took place a couple of weeks after Jamal Khashoggi was, was butchered. A mm. couple of weeks later, a U.S. organization, a beloved U.S. organization by many, flew its, all its wrestlers, like these nostalgic characters that we all grew up with, to Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia to compete there for... And that could not have been more reputation laundering. So I think small examples like that, Hamid bin Salman really seeing the benefits of sports and how it's able to sort of erase prior mistakes and errors and sort of restructure the narrative of the conversation, that that only probably emboldened him to push forward even more from there. Then you have some successful boxing events, and then you realize, he realizes that he has the same sort of leverage in the sports world that he does have in oil. He has the resources. He yeah. has the money in one hand and the oil in the other, right? So at the end of the day, the sports world operates no differently to the global economy, right? He's in control of that supply there. He's in control of the resources here. He's going to offer more money than most other people can are going to offer. And if money is, is the defining uh, negotiator and the defining sort of... yeah. I lost track of the word here, but if money is all that matters, which in the UK, in the case of the United States, where people are born into believing that the pursuit of profit is is, is your 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 ultimate your ultimate achievement in life. Well, you reap what you sow, and the United States is about to reap what yeah. it sowed, what it has long sowed. Even the NBA has just or changed invest, its yeah. rules recently to allow sovereign wealth funds to be able yeah, to invest. I think they do. Almost like they want this to yeah. happen. I understand you're all seeing money. You're seeing a recession on one side of the world side and they're seeing money on the other side of the world. But I hope you understand that it comes with political consequences. The, the Qatari Investment Authority investment into the Washington Wizards recently, I, th- I think probably it's just the, the opening of the floodgates. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense here, talking to people in the sports business here, that the owners welcome it, not, not only because... It, we may be getting to peak valuation of, of sports franchise, franchises in the US. They're, they're very, very highly valued because of the closed nature of all the sports. But it's just a brand new potential market. There are only, and this is simplistic, so many billionaires that can buy a sports franchise. There are only so many of them. Exactly. And bringing sovereign wealth into it just opens up a brand new market. It, it absolutely does. And unfortunately... This is a good segue into the other country that we were discussing, the United Arab Emirates, which I think might have had the most cutting approach so far. It tends mm. to be how I feel about the United Arab Emirates because it sits so so situated so close to Saudi, which is almost like the lap. It's like the United States and Canada. Canada is able to get away with a lot because the U.S. is louder, better known and causes all sorts of controversy well saudi is exactly the same and the united arab emirates happens to just get away with a lot of issues we had we just situated between an era where everyone's talking about saudi's rise in sports and Qatar's world cup the united arab emirates has really not been the focus of anyone's attention mm. except when you look into manchester city but here's the thing the way they invested in manchester city 
taking their time over years, building this team, building this legitimate team with truly phenomenal players and an extraordinary coach in Pim Guardiola, right? Yeah. Makes it seem that they're not just simply throwing money at this. It's somehow presented, it's somehow presented the Sheikh as, I'm forgetting it's Sheikh Mansour. It's somehow mm-hmm. presented Sheikh Mansour as this phenomenal sort of genius businessman, which he not necessarily was, but that helped him help elevate his standing within the monarchy itself. Because when yeah. he first bought Manchester City, he actually didn't have much of a position apart from being a royal family member with a few sort of committees here and there. But since then, he's been elevated to deputy prime minister, vice president of the country, leads a variety of the investment funds. And he even is in charge of the soft power council. I mean, how much more obvious does it get to what's that <laughs> was? What yes. United Arab Emirates? I mean, they're telling they're telling you flat out. Whereas we see sport as an element of soft power, as a way to yes. allure and attract you, they, they are not even attempting to hide it in the slightest. It's right there in their government institutions, right? And, right, and yeah. Sheikh Mansour is in charge of that significantly. Yet somehow they've been able to run this sort of campaign that oh, Manchester City isn't connected actually to to the state, even though it's owned by the vice president of the country. I mean, I don't understand this logic. You have to do some real mental gymnastics to to claim that it's not state-owned. But sure, so be it. Here's what I find really interesting. Unlike Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia doesn't seem to have done any of this yet. Saudi Arabia is buying teams, buying sports, etc. Hasn't really invested in the communities yet. While Manchester City has really invested in Manchester. As a matter of fact, the Manchester Council, City Council, really gave some prime real estate to yeah. to the United Arab Emirates, didn't they? To invest and to build. And the, clearly a bad deal for, for, the, for the United Kingdom, terrible deal for Manchester, because the profits are going to go straight to the United Arab Emirates. They're the ones who come out of this as winners, yet they're presented at, as these sort of heroes and magnanimous, generous benefactors right. who are yeah. here for the betterment of the community. So they've done some truly phenomenal strategizing and cunning uh, investments here. It was interesting. Last week, Andy Burnham, mayor of Manchester, was on a podcast called Podcast Pod Save the UK, which is a political, left-leaning political podcast. And, and he really didn't engage in this topic, although he was directly asked and basically said, hey, well, look at the skyline of Manchester. Like, point to the shiny buildings without going any deeper on the, into the mm-hmm. consequences for the actual people in Manchester who potentially can't pay the rent anymore because, because the real estate investment, quote unquote, has an inflationary effect on, on house prices. Mm-hmm. So, but the playbook has worked. The, I don't know whether you read the Fair Square report on the local politicization that has happened in, in Manchester. It came out a couple of weeks ago. No, co-opting I haven't, actually. It's, I mean, it's a really interesting read just in terms of like what happened with local mm-hmm. politicians, both in Manchester and is, and is happening in, in Newcastle, though the investment hasn't been there yet. So where do you think this all plays out? What's let let's let's make the assumption that, that Qatar win the, the bid for, for United or or um Sheikh Jassim and wins the bid for United. That 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 feels like three of the blockade countries in the Premier League competing with each other. Is 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 that it? I mean is where does it go from there after after that? We're seeing two things happen. I think we'll we'll eventually see the normalization of, of of such takeovers, right? Where it no longer becomes even a topic that people want feel they can be even outraged about anymore. And trust me, that happens, right? Fans are fickle. Fans are extremely fickle. We know this. We know this as as sports fans, but they can be extremely fickle. They're very willing to be forgetful, and they're also willing to be willfully ignorant about topics like this. So eventually, they're just going to get tired. Even the best of them are going to get tired, especially once it seems like it's inevitable, right? So this this sort of normalization of um, of these types of takeovers in sports where just state-owned football teams are just dominating the league, I think that's just unfortunately the future unless legitimate regulation takes place to, to, to stop that. The other thing we're going to really see is just the regional rivalries of the Gulf play out in the English mm. Premier League. And that's just absurd in, in itself. But yeah, the whole point is now going to see if, like, I mean, Saudi Arabia is definitely trying to see if not only it can recreate 
the Man City playbook with, with Newcastle United. They're actually trying to see if they can do better. Mm. If they can do it in a shorter period of time and they can just be better at it. That's good. That's what Saudi wants. It wants to prove it's better than the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. That's that. Like, all these, all these. They are allies. They are allies. But in amongst allies, there's always one who sees himself as the best, and that's what they're trying to figure out right now amongst them. So you're going to see this very much regional, regional, masculine sort of competitive nature play out throughout sports. Throughout sport. Oh, you bought this team. What, what team I'm going to buy? Like this is exactly the sort of childish attitude we're, we're about to see here and we're actually already seeing it take place but if manchester if manchester united's just bought out by Qatar, which really is looking sort of inevitable at this point that just that only furthers it who knows what comes next the question is is that okay does this open the floodgates for beyond the gulf because the gulf isn't our only issue mm-hmm. the gulf is the gulf and these authoritarian states in the gulf aren't the only problem i mean one of one of Arsenal's main sponsors is Rwanda. Rwanda yeah. Is Rwanda? The end of the day, and Rwanda is another authoritarian regime run by Paul Kagame that has a laundry list of human rights abuses we can discuss. So the problem goes deeper than these main actors that we see. They just happen to be so powerful, so resource rich that they definitely seem like your supervillain mm. right now. But the rot has been there forever, hasn't it? They've been influencing the league forever, not just them, but all sorts of authoritarians, right? And before that, Russia once upon a time had its involvement. But remember, people see as soon as the war broke out and really there was this massive movement of support for Ukraine, it was almost inevitable that someone like Abramovich was going to get kicked out of Chelsea. Well, where is that attitude generally? Do we need a war all the time for that yeah. to happen? And mind you, even a war in most places won't do that. Remember, we were talking about xenophobia earlier and people's perspective. Well, Saudi Arabia was created a horrific humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. in Yemen. That was war right there, and nobody gave a yeah. damn because nobody gives a damn about Yemen. It's that simple. People gave a damn about Ukraine. They're white. They looked European. This is not my words. This is the words of other European broadcasters at the start yeah. of the war saying, oh my God, they're like us. How can this happen in Europe in the 21st century? As if Europe doesn't go to war all the time. Well, correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for sure, yes, that, that that Yemen war was sponsored in large part by the USA and the UK with logistics, weapons, planes, tanks, yes. bombs, intelligent and, intelligence and so on. And, and we shouldn't forget that. I'm reminded daily, by the way, the, the, the community keeps me honest <laughs> on this one. For sure, absolutely, and 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 that's part of the reason, of course, Saudi Arabia being a, a strategic partner of the UK on, on both the weapons trade and carbon. That the, the government Johnson government was so keen to push that through, as we now know because of reporting, and and mm-hmm. almost certainly the same conversations we'll have. Well, I, without na- naming people, I know behind the scenes there are attempts to engage engage politicians on the potential Qatari takeover of Manchester United and nobody is interested. And that's because Qatar is another very important partner for the UK as well. Exactly. The UK has a lot of those partners and it goes beyond football. The UK maintains a phenomenal relationship with Bahrain, which is right. another one yeah. of those Gulf countries we haven't mentioned, has a phenomenal relationship with Bahrain. Actually, they just recently just signed another partnership just a couple of days ago. Some of the biggest horse, like some of, one of the biggest horse races that take place in the United Kingdom and just the horse racing industry is completely supported by money coming from the ruler in Dubai and money coming from Bahrain and like these Gulf states. And, and there are people in the horse racing industry in the UK who will say flat out, without this money, we are mm. dead. This doesn't exist without them. So, of course, you're going to continue to court these dictators and celebrate them and empower them because in the end of the day, the United Kingdom has tied itself economically to them. They are dependent on them as well. As much as they wouldn't admit this, they are mm-hmm. dependent on them. And that makes them extremely vulnerable. That makes the United Kingdom's own cultural assets vulnerable to take over. United, the, Manchester United is not just a, another team. It's not just another team. It's a cultural mm-hmm. asset. The idea that that can just be sold willy-nilly is, I want to say, unfathomable. The problem is it's far too fathomable. And Sadly, that in so, itself yeah. what's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, United is 150 years old. And uh, as you said, it's a, it's a cultural asset. I, I don't think this would happen if it was, say, 
I don't know what the right example is here, the Royal Opera House or something like that. There's internal UK politics at play here <laughs> or the British Museum, the museum mm-hmm. of all the stuff we stole. But it's an important, <laughs> yeah, it's an important cultural asset, United. It's also an, an important asset as part of the, the Premier League's globalisation. It's one of the most global products that the UK has. And it's, in a sense, as people tell me frequently, the UK's version of sports washing, not not quite in the same way, not dictated from the top, but definitely used as a, as leverage mm-hmm. for sure. And and United is the prize the prize asset within that within that industry as well. And and it was interesting. I felt this way actually, you know, before talk of a Qatari takeover happened, because not only did many fans reject the Glazers for the business model they brought, but they tied themselves very specifically in the club, very specifically to the club's history which is an idea as much as an institution. And and they were very happy to sort of celebrate 58 and 68 and Busby and and the history of Manchester United and use that as, a, as marketing leverage. And it will be very interesting, the line that if, if Qatar takes over, the line they take there and whether the Qatari political goals are tied to Manchester United's historical place in UK society and global society. And whether that's too far for some people or not, we'll see. We'll see. But I I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen. Nor would I, unfortunately. Fascinating conversation and really complex and difficult issues to to grasp. I really do recommend that people visit your Substack. Excellent stuff if you want to learn about some of the issues that we could only touch on in an hour today. So, So where do we find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter. I am still I am still in on that hellhole of a yep. website at Zidan at Zidan Sports, and I'll be there until I can drag as many of my followers off there and onto my Substack, which is SportsPolitica.news. You can find a significant amount of my reporting there. I also do regular reporting for the New York Times and the Guardian. You, given that it's relevant to this conversation, you may want to check out my most recent piece for the New York Times, which was done with colleague Tariq Panja was about Leo Messi's relationship yeah. with Saudi Arabia. Excellent piece. Uh, yeah. Primarily the tourism, the, the tourism, Saudi tourism authority. We were able to review the contract actually between Leo Messi and the Saudi tourism authority, which shed some significant light, some really a rare insight into how Saudi Arabia structures its contracts and what it's actually interested in gaining from a lot of these athletes and why it matters so much when it comes to tourism. So I would recommend giving that article a read. Yes, I, I somehow suspect that I will not one day get paid $2 million for a social media post, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Leo's in a special position there. And, and what's extraordinary with that, just that you just mentioned that, quickly I'll say, I still think Messi was shortchanged there and Saudi's got the better end of the deal. Yeah, I mean... Uh, That's how priceless I think his... His PR value is to Saudi Arabia and the millions upon millions of followers yeah. he has. It's priceless to them. $2 million is nothing. It's uh, I mean, in, in fact, if you dive into the, the deal he has done with the MLS, no, normally with Inter Miami, but of course, centralized contracts with the M- uh, MLS, he has, and, and in fact, in fact, Apple as well. So he's going to take a, mm-hmm. a cut of proceeds from the growth of the sport in, in this country. Much as Michael Jordan did all those years ago with with Nike, a very similar structured deal, I think mm-hmm. and, uh, he'll probably do extremely well out of it. But so will the MLS because it is already drawing exactly a, a lot of interest. And, you know, I know it's a different topic, but last night LA played LA Galaxy, LAFC played LA Galaxy, and mm-hmm. drew more than eighty thousand people at the Rose Bowl. So the latent demand is there for sure, and, and Messi is going to do very well out of it. Until he takes up his contract again with Riyadh and the Saudi Tourism Board in 2026 after that, the World Cup's finished, I suspect. But yeah, we'll see. Ooh, we will see what happens there. I'm sure I have plenty of reporting left to do on this topic. So you do. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, until then, many thanks. Appreciate your time. And thanks for diving into these topics. Karim Zidane, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. It was an absolute pleasure. It's a wonderful conversation.